Daniel chapter 9. So if you'd like to turn there, uh, we should finish that this morning. Um, All right, Daniel chapter 9. So as we get into this, uh, we sort of ended in verse 19 last week, and, and we want to get into, into this chapter, and, and I want to start that by looking at Gabriel, uh, because he's the messenger that God sends to Daniel. So let's read verses 20 and 21. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Now, so, so Gabriel literally means strong one of the strong God. That's what his name means. But he's, and we talked about this before, but he's the messianic messenger. Whenever we encounter Gabriel, uh, we find him bringing a message about the Messiah, which I think is a significant clue for you and I about the interpretation of what we're, we're looking, out here, looking at here. And I bring that up because as you study through uh, Daniel chapter 9 and, and prophecy in particular, there are two approaches there's the Christological approach, and there's the non-Christological approach. We're going to discuss that here in just a little while. Christological approach obviously factors into Gabriel bringing uh, information about the Messiah, about the Christ who is to come. And so I think that it's significant that here he is bringing that information, uh, bringing that message. And I don't think that it's by any coincidence that he is the one who is sent by God. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but whether it's in Luke chapter 1, where he speaks with Zechariah in the temple, uh, whether it's Luke chapter 1, where he's talking with Mary, proclaiming that she's going to be the mother of the, the Savior, and then some random verses in Daniel that I've failed yet again to put a chapter to, because I just copied this slide and I was going to, and anyway, so just two random verses in Daniel, somewhere, but everywhere that we encounter Gabriel, and this is the first place that we encounter him, is in the book of Daniel, he's one of two named angels, uh, Michael being the other one, both are here in Daniel, but we find that he's bringing information about the Messiah, it's prophetic, it's looking forward to, but nonetheless, that is what he does, so I think it adds to our argument that this is, should be interpreted in a Christological uh, approach, I think it lends to context, the messenger who is bringing the message and the audience both. So Daniel says that he is here praying, and you'll remember that he's in the beginning of the chapter, he spends time in the Word of God. He's figured out by studying through the prophecies of Jeremiah that have been recorded and written down that the 70 years of captivity in, for Judah in Babylon is nearing its end. And, and as he does that, he, he's sort of overwhelmed, and he enters into a, a time of prayer and confession, just as it says here, just as it's summarized in verse 20, for his nation, for his own sins, and praying for the, re, uh, the, the rebuilding, the restoration of Jerusalem and 
uh, and the temple there in, in Jerusalem. And that's where he's at. And, and I think it's significant to point out that he's been at this all day, at least a period of time. And it says that when he, and, and we find this later as, as Gabriel begins to talk, that, hey, when you started to pray, that's when I was sent. And I came as swiftly as I could, but he doesn't tap him on the shoulder until the time of the evening oblation, uh, which is about 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon is when that would start. So Daniel's been at this for a while. Now, an oblation is simply a thing that is offered or presented to God. And there's a reason that this is, this is happening, and there's a reason that it happens at that time in particular, but we're not worried about the time as much as, though it, is, it does have some significance, as we are about what it's a reference to. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 29, and let's get a handle on this. Why is this happening? Why is this going on? Uh, some <clears throat> in Exodus chapter twenty-nine, uh, we have Aaron and his sons are being consecrated as the priesthood, and they're being given instruction about what they should do. This is part of your daily tasks. And as we get into verses thirty-eight through forty-two in Exodus twenty-nine, it says, "Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar." Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. So there's something to be happening here. And ultimately, there's a morning and an evening sacrifice, both. And that's what's being referred to. That's why there's two. Um, the one thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other thou shalt offer at even. And with, with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hen of beaten oil, and the fourth part of a hen of wine uh, for a drink offering. And don't get that confused. That's just a measure of volume. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember what it is, how much it is, but it's not a significant amount. Uh, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even and shalt do there to according to the meat offering of the morning and according to the drink offering thereof for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak there unto thee. So part of the job of the priesthood is to offer these particular sacrifices daily. And so you have this, this, this lamb that is being offered. And in addition to that lamb and alongside it with that lamb are a, a drink offering and a meat offering or a grain offering. That's what's being offered here. That's what's being brought. And this happens every single day. As we get into Leviticus uh, chapter one, for instance, actually, let's just go to Leviticus chapter six. Leviticus chapter one talks about this as well. Uh, but Leviticus chapter 6, uh, verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night into the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. So the, what is being brought, this lamb in the morning and the lamb in the evening, are offered as a burnt offering. So here's a description of what that looks like. The burnt offering isn't a particular offering in and of itself. It's a description of how to do this particular kind of offering. And, and so there's a description about what that is. So this is, there's, there's a fire made, uh, and it burns all night long, 
And the priest shall put on his fine linen garment and his linen breeches. Shall he put on upon his flesh and take up the ashes which the fire has consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Verse 11, and he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it and shall burn thereon. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So in similar fashion, we can go through, we can find out how the meat offering and how the drink offerings are supposed to be offered. How they're, how they're to be executed, what the priest is supposed to do. And so this is what's happening. Daniel, for most of his life, hasn't witnessed this. Now, he had prior to his captivity, he had seen the smoke going up as the priest would offer this sacrifice there in the middle of Jerusalem, not in the middle per se, but there in Jerusalem at the temple. He, he had witnessed this, he had seen this. And it is still happening. Now, they're not offering the sacrifice. The burnt offering isn't happening, but the meat and the drink offerings are. This is the evening oblation that's being discussed. It's still going on, and, and, and it's still a significant time. And it was taught by uh, those religious instructors of the day that this is a time that we set apart for prayer. This is something that we set aside uh, to engage in focused time with the Lord. In Matthew chapter 27, uh, Matthew chapter 27, in verse 46, uh, <clears throat> so here we have Christ on the cross. He's there hanging, suffering, and agonizing over uh, for our sins. And it says in Matthew 27, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, or at about 3 p.m., about the time of the evening oblation, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then immediately after that, he gives up the ghost. This is where Jesus lays down his life for you and I, for mankind. And he does so at this time. Now, here's the connection, right? These two lambs that are brought, they're offered as a burnt offering, but they are a sin offering at the same time. And so here it is that Gabriel gets to Daniel at the time of the, this evening oblation. Jesus Christ is crucified at the same time of the day. Symbolizing that here is this evening oblation. This is the offering, the thing presented to God on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 through 14, says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to, pur to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All of those things, and Hebrews is all about the types and the pictures, those things that are, that are in the Old Testament that are illustrating the reality of Jesus Christ and his perfect fulfillment of that in the new. So here is Jesus Christ 
even in Daniel's time. And I think that there is some significance, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but I think there's some significance in the fact that Gabriel comes to Daniel at that particular time of day. He is the messianic messenger. And as he's going to talk about these things, as he's going to progress into this understanding about what is going to happen in the future, that Christ-focused perspective needs to be in mind. As Jesus laid down his life to conquer death and to overcome Satan, that's, that's what he is going to be talking about here. So, a couple, a couple of other things before we get to that. Verse 22 and 23. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly loved, beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Gabriel's purpose, the reason he was sent, was to cause Daniel to understand and to have wisdom. That's what the word skill means. Skill equals wisdom or the proper use of the understanding that he's going to be given. It wasn't intended, this prophecy is not intended to be enigmatic. Right? You remember in World War II, we had the, the Enigma machine, that's what pumped out the code. Enigmatic means that it's not supposed to be some hidden meaning, some it's understandable. God has given this prophecy so that we would understand, so that and Daniel's cause understood. And we can assume that Gabriel succeeded in his mission to give Daniel understanding and skill the proper use of this understanding. I think that if that's the case, if God is here intending this to be an understandable thing, we should probably be able to follow along. Remember that one of the things about apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is that some of, some of it is assumed that the audience, the reader, can follow the thread throughout Scripture. So it falls to us to do a little bit of investigation here. And that's what we're going to spend this morning doing. I'll tell you that it's a fairly straightforward thing. So let's get into that. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquities and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So, Literally, it says there are 70 weeks, and that literally means 77s. The word weeks is not in the original language. Um, and it might be somewhat misleading uh, because that word there is actually just a plural of the word for seven. So we have seven seventies is the idea here. We have, without specifying it, it doesn't tell us whether they're days, months, or years. I'm convinced that they are representative of years, and hopefully that becomes clear as we progress through this. The typical Christological interpretation, and the Christological, it just means that the prophecy and its fulfillment relate to Jesus. That's all it means. 
but that, that's an important thing for us. The, the typical Christological, if we're going to interpret this as relating to Jesus, is that the weeks equal years, thus there's 490 years. And we're going to base that on a Jewish style calendar with 360 days in a year, not 365. The Jews would occasionally throw in an extra month, sort of a leap month, they would call it. We have a leap year where we put that extra day at the end of February just to sort of correct things up. The Jews did that even less frequently, and they would throw it into, and they would add a leap month. I'm not an expert in all those things, but that's how they did it. And that's why we use a 360-day calendar when we're talking about prophetic things here, because God is speaking to a Jewish audience. If they're going to understand this, they're going to understand it in that particular context. So there's no reason for us to impose a Gregorian calendar, a 365 and a quarter day calendar. We're just going to assume that it's a Jewish calendar, 360 days. 70 weeks, and those weeks are literal. Uh, so so the, I'll just tell you the, the chronology, the, the timing of each event is where the contention comes in. Um, so 70 weeks, uh, and I say they're literal, I don't mean that they're 70 literal weeks. 49 weeks is not enough, or 490 weeks is not enough to progress through any substantive literal fulfillment of any of this prophecy. It just doesn't leave enough time. It doesn't. So, but I do think they're literal. And I say that because there are those that would interpret them to be indefinite periods of time. I think that there are definite periods of time. There are literal periods of time. The reason that God chose the words that he chose is so that we would understand that. Uh, The fact that God sent Gabriel to, to cause Daniel to understand is an important contextual clue. It's something that we need to pick up on. And we can best interpret what Gabriel explains to Daniel through the lens of Daniel's comprehension or through the same lens that Daniel would interpret it through. We find the same principle applied uh, and we apply the same principle when we look in the Gospels. Here is Jesus, and he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, and, the, and it's a discussion about who he is, the fact that he is divine, that he is God incarnate. And sometimes in the translation to English, we, it's seemingly insignificant, but immediately his audience takes up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. It's clearly understood. So the lens of interpretation of the audience, those who were there, give us clues as how we might interpret that correctly. And in the same respect, chapter 9 specifically relates to the future of Israel, which is how Daniel is going to interpret this. That's how he would understand it. That's the lens of interpretation that he is using. Here is Gabriel. He's sent to give understanding. As we see these things, it's related to Israel. The church isn't alluded to, and it isn't mentioned anywhere here. Uh, of course, it's not going to be mentioned, but it's not alluded to. It isn't something that we can even infer upon the text. And I think that is an important thing for us to keep in mind in this particular prophecy. Now, in verse 24, we find six purposes, six things that are going to happen for sure in that 490-year period, in, that, in the 70 weeks. Four, six purposes. Number one, 
to finish the transgression, finish the transgression, and simply to bring it into the, the apostasy and the wandering of Israel. So this is going to be, we're going to see Israel restored. We're going to see them brought back to Jerusalem. We're going to see those things uh, brought to pass. And when we know that that happens, that has happened in the past. That is, in some we're going to find that there are things that are already fulfilled and there is little literal fulfillment of those things. And then we're going to find that there are things that are yet to be fulfilled in this prophecy. The second thing is that there's going to be an end of sins. Now, the word end, it means to seal or to totally cover. When Noah built the ark, he was to cover it with pitch, completely cover it. He was to seal it with pitch. Same idea here. It's never to be open. So there's going to be an end of sins made here. God is going to uh, deal with that. And And there's going to be a reconciliation for iniquity. And really, this is a clear reference to the picture of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. The idea that we are separated, but we're brought back together. Now, I'll just tell you this. The basic provisions are made in Christ. The basic provisions of reconciliation of Israel with God are made in Christ. We don't find that taking place on any large scale until the second coming. I'm not saying that the individual Jews may not be saved. That's obviously not the case. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But this is talking on a, this is speaking on a national level. This is a much more significant event. We don't see that really happening in, in mass until the second coming of Christ. So there is some uh, reconciliation that is yet to happen. We also have the everlasting righteousness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Um, In Jeremiah chapter 23, turn there with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, and I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. So there is something to this relationship between Israel uh, as a nation, as a people, and the, the righteousness that is ascribed to the Messiah, this coming king. We look at it differently than, than the Jews do, because we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as Scripture tells us. And so when we look at this everlasting righteousness, in many respects, I'm convinced that it's a reference to justification, to that declaration by God to all who are in faith that they are right, that they are completely, that, they have, that their righteousness is equal to that of God's, which is the standard of righteousness that God expects. And it isn't anything that we have accomplished, but it's all that Jesus has finished. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I should be able to quote this one. This was a memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, but I can't quite. 
not this morning. It says, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he's still our righteousness. It's still a consistent picture, a single redemptive purpose from Genesis to Revelation. This everlasting righteousness is going to come, and that's a result of Jesus Christ. He also says that the vision will be sealed up. And this is a more difficult one to, to unpack, but it says the, the vision is going to be sealed up. And when you get into the Hebrew, and, you, and I'm not an expert in Hebrew. I'm not a grammarian when it, in regards to any, either of the biblical languages. But, but those who are and those who weigh in on the topic, it really isn't a discussion about the particular vision being discussed here. It isn't that this vision, this prophecy is going to be sealed up and for some future time. That's not what's being discussed. It's a discussion of the sealing of prophetic vision, period. No further revelatory prophecies. Here is, that's going to cease. That's going to come to an end. And, and, and that's ultimately what the language tends to indicate. And so I, I'm pretty comfortable with that as an interpretation. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, that you know, God used to speak to us by his prophets in diverse times and places in the past. That's how he spoke. But today it says he speaks to us by his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have this conclusion with the, with the Messiah, with the coming of Jesus Christ, this conclusion of revelatory prophecy. It isn't how it, Daniel wouldn't be having any more visions like this. Now, somebody may ask, well, what about Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where it says, and your young men will dream dreams and your old men will have visions and those kinds of things. They're not revelatory in the sense that they're not conveying new scriptural truth that needs to be recorded as the word of God. It's going to be confirmatory of the word of God, but it isn't on the same level necessarily. God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We have to define what is, what is happening. So you see up the vision. It's really a discussion about, uh, about what's happening. Uh, not only seal up the vision and prophecy. There's going to be a conclusion of those things. God is going to stop revealing things because it's finished. It's done. All the revelation that needs to happen has happened. That's the reason why. And it says to anoint the most holy. Now, immediately, when I read that the first few times, I mean, oh, anoint the most holy. Jesus Christ is the most holy. We're going to anoint him as king. And No. The most holy is a reference to the holy of holies in the temple. We're going to reconsecrate the most holy. The holy of holies will be consecrated. This is absolutely necessary to happen, because as you look in, uh, not only the book of Revelation, but you look at these things that are, that are going to happen, a temple has to be standing. It has to be standing. But if you go to Israel today, there is no temple. At some point, it will be built and it will be consecrated. It will be anointed. The Holy of Holies will be anointed again, just as it was in the in the Old Testament. When does that happen? I don't know. Nobody knows that but the Lord. But it has to happen. It, it, the, the rest of the interpretation, in some respects, hinges on that. 
fact, a lot of the a lot of the interpretation of what happens even in the book of Revelation hinges on the fact that there is a temple. So it, at some point it will come. Um, I've read more than one news story where it talks about Israel having a prefab temple. All they need is the go-ahead, and they could probably throw the thing up in a week. But I haven't seen it. It's Like I said, I've read several news stories over that is indicated, but wouldn't surprise me. It also wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't true and they had to build it from scratch. It will be rebuilt. Okay, so let, let, let's dive into these weeks just a little bit. Uh, verse 25 uh, through 26a, which just means the beginning of the verse. And I'm, I don't normally split those things up, but it makes more sense if we, if we do, because, and we'll, I'll explain why as we progress through verse 26. <clears throat> no, therefore, so, so there's this six, these six purposes that God is going to accomplish through this period, through this 70 weeks. Those things are going to happen. Verse 26, or verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, or 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So we have two periods of weeks in verse 25. We have seven weeks, and then we have 62 weeks. So we have 49 years and 434 years. The decree to build Jerusalem initiates the prophetic time clock. And, and, and we get that from the text. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, unto the to the messiah is this time period it's going to be 69 weeks total but it's split into two sections seven weeks and 62 weeks now there's a lot of theories in regard to when this decree happened because if you go through and you look in scripture there's actually four degree decrees to rebuild the temple first and uh, you have the decree of cyrus which I think is somewhat significant. I mean, he's prophesied about in, in Isaiah as being the guy who's going to be, who's going to rebuild Jerusalem and all those things. And he initiates the first decree. But if you look at his decree, it specifically states in 2 Chronicles and uh, 36 and in Ezra chapter 1 that it's the temple only, that I've been commissioned to go and build the temple of the living God in Jerusalem. And that's when he sends Ezra out and, and the temple begins to be rebuilt. It's the temple only. It's certainly the first steps of rebuilding. It certainly begins something. Turn with me to Haggai chapter 1 for just a moment, though. Haggai, Haggai, however it is pronounced correctly in your mind. It's toward the end of the New Testament. He's one of those minor prophets. Uh, he's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. But in Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, so we get a time frame here. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, um, and then that's in verse 1. But if we look at 
uh, verses two through four. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, This time, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lies waste. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. There's this rebuke coming because what has happened? There are people that have gone from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And they haven't built a temple. They're, they've built houses and they've built those things, but they're outside of Jerusalem. So the initial wave of people that comes in, the first thing they do is build houses and they build them outside of the city. And then they, there's some rebuke happening. It's time to build the house of the Lord. This is why we were sent. We also have the decree of Darius. And we read about that in Exodus chapter, excuse me, not Exodus, Ezra chapter 6. Now, largely the decree of Darius simply reiterates the decree of Silas to build a temple. And it's related to the temple only. We also have a decree of Artaxerxes. And, you know, there's more than one Artaxerxes, but we read that in Ezra chapter 7. There's a second decree of Artaxerxes, and we read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. And I'm convinced that that is the decree that initiates this prophetic time, this prophetic clock. For a couple of reasons. So first of all, let's read Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, you're going to have to go back in the Old Testament. This is one of those historical books, and it... it is after the book of Daniel, ultimately. Um, and I would encourage you to go look at those other, go look at Second Chronicles chapter 36. Go read Ezra. Go, go look at those other decrees and study them. I, I think that they, in some respects, are related, but I don't think that they're the decree that initiates that time clock. And I realize that maybe we're, we're honing in very finely on, on a particular instance but I think that it fits the best with everything that we're reading here in Daniel. So Nehemiah chapter two. Now in Nehemiah chapter one, right? That, that's when he's, he's hearing about all these things that are going on in Jerusalem and hey, the, the walls aren't built, the temple's there, but it's, there's problems. And so ultimately he's kind of down and, and he's the king's cupbearer. And so Artaxerxes is like, hey, Nehemiah, what's the deal, man? And he tells him. And then he receives his commissioning, and he actually goes, <clears throat> so, so let's read this, verse 1, chapter 2. And it, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore afraid. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should my countenance be, why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then said the king young to me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me then to Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulcher, that I may build it. 
And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when will thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make. So here's the, here's the circumstance. He gets sent by Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem, to, to see the city, to build it. So this is a commissioning specifically to build Jerusalem. The temple is already built. Ezra has already happened. They've built the temple. And in fact, we find Nehemiah interacting with people at the temple in the book of Nehemiah. Now jump with me down to verse 12. When he gets there, he doesn't show his hand right away. He sort of plays it cool, and he goes out at night to do a quick survey of the city to see what's happening. And that's where we pick up in verse 12. He says, And I arose in the night, and I saw some few men with me. Neither told I any man that what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Just think about that. Pause there for a moment. Here he is, riding this animal on the roads, and he can't even ride the animal because there's no room for it to pass. The streets are in complete and utter disarray. Remember that when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took Jerusalem, they leveled the city. And so we have all of this rubble plugging up all of these streets. And that's what he's trying to walk through. That's what he's trying to ride his, his animal through, and he can't. Verse 15, then when I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, and this is the decree of Nehemiah. This is it. This kicks everything off. He says, you see the distress and we are in, that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that were spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. So we have the, the streets of Jerusalem being ultimately plugged up and destroyed and impassable. And as we get into to Daniel, what does it specifically say? We have these seven weeks, and then we have this other period of time. And then it says the wall, specifically the wall of Jerusalem, which, which as you read through the book of Nehemiah, is a huge focus of what is being rebuilt. In fact, he says, you build over here, and, and this family builds this section, and this family builds this section, and everybody built their section, and it was troublous times, just as it said. And in fact, there's, it's so troublous that they have the command that when you're building, keep a sword in one hand so that we can defend ourselves. This was not a peaceful time in Jerusalem's history. But it's time to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah, that's what he decrees, and that's what they accomplish. 
So much so that they're going to reinstitute people leaving in the city. All the nobles have to move back to Jerusalem, and then they take and cast lots, and one-tenth of them have to come back into the city so that Jerusalem itself will be populated. And this took time. The first period of weeks referenced here, the seven weeks is 49 years, and that's the generation that it took to build the walls and the streets of Jerusalem. Now, I have here at the end, right, Jesus' triumphal entry as prince or king. If you want to read a good book, and it's probably, it's probably, a, it's a good book, but it isn't probably the most interesting book. Might be a little boring here and there. <clears throat> Sir, uh, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book about, and, and I think he did a very good job. I don't know if he nailed it. I don't, I don't quite agree that he nailed it, but I think he did a really good job working out what happens here. Because if we come from, we understand, and, and Daniel understands that this is going to be fulfilled. And parts of this are fulfilled already. In fact, the most of what we read in Daniel chapter 9 of these 70 weeks is fulfilled. There's one week left. And so we should look back and we should be able to see, based on what Daniel's looking at here, what, what events are already happened. And ultimately, we have 69 weeks unto the coming of the Messiah. And then we have this description of the Messiah being cut off in verse, the beginning of verse 26. And that ends the 69th week. There's one week left. Now, if we take 445 BC, we apply that same 360-day calendar that the Jews would have used, and we factor in the appropriate leap months and all of those things, where do we end up? We end up at the triumphal entry. We end up the Messiah, the prince, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey as that conquering, victorious king with everyone laying down the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. We have a literal and significant fulfillment in that event. Is that the fulfillment discussed here? I can't say with certainty it is because Scripture doesn't say. But it is the only theory offered that doesn't just fulfill and dead end, and there is nothing there. There are others who would, they, 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 who would get to this time period, but somewhere it just, it just ends, and there is no significant event. There is no nothing that we can point to. And the whole point of Sir Robert Anderson's book is that Jesus Christ is the triumphal king coming into Jerusalem. And here in Daniel, at the end of the 69th week, we have the Messiah specifically called the Prince coming into Jerusalem. And we've talked about it, right, that, that Jesus Christ and his kingdom being established at his birth rather than at the end of his ministry. And I think that's still true. But this is the first time the Messiah is coming in, and it's been prophesied, this is how he's going to come into Jerusalem. And he fulfills those prophecies in addition, and the people shout, Hosanna. 
the celebratory return of the victorious king. So while I can't say emphatically, this is it, I think that it's probably the closest thing that I've read that could be it. And I realize that that's maybe not exactly what we wanted. We wanted a date and a time. And I would probably tell you in private conversation, the Jews should have been watching. <laughs> they should have been paying attention that this guy is coming in and he's claimed to be God himself and he's claimed to be the Messiah. John the Baptist said he was the Messiah. And here is everybody rejoicing and calling him the prince, the victorious king. The earliest possible date, the terminus a quo, as Latin, and I actually had to listen to it. You know, Google tells you how to say things because I don't know Latin. The earliest possible date for any of this to start, though, is definitely Nehemiah chapter two. All of the other decrees are specifically the temple, not Jerusalem itself. And then we have this discussion in Daniel chapter 20. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 25, about the street and the walls being rebuilt in troublous times, which is exactly what we read about in Nehemiah. So I'm convinced that that's the case. And I think that it is significant and very much worth noting that at the end of 69 weeks, that's that 434 years or whatever that period of time is, my math is failing me we get so near to the triumphal entry. Just throwing that out there for your consideration. I think that there's very much merit there. Much more substantive things to talk about, though, here in this prophecy. We know that it's happened. Even if it isn't on that particular day, we know that it's happened. And it also says in the beginning of verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, so after 62 more weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, the word cut off consistently through Scripture means to be put to death. Just to be clear about that, right? It means that he's going to die. In Genesis chapter 9, I want to look at two examples to lay that as a foundation of understanding for us. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Here is Noah, and he's come off the ark, and God is instituting the covenant with him. And the seal of that covenant just so happens to be the rainbow, or God's bow in the sky, if you, if you have trouble with it being the rainbow. It's at least God's bow in the sky, but it's something that we see and we remember that God isn't going to cut off all living flesh any longer or again with a flood. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of the flood, neither shall there be uh, shall any more be a flood to destroy the earth? How many people were on the ark? There were eight. How many people survived? Only the people that were on the ark, only eight. What happened to everyone else? They died. They, as we read in scripture, were cut off. In Jeremiah chapter 11, there's another obscure reference that I, that I didn't pull up because it was talking about cutting trees. The sense was still, we're killing the trees. That was the sense of what was being, but I, that's kind of a, obscure. It's less clear than these other two, but there were technically three examples. Jeremiah chapter 11, 
verse 19. That was in Deuteronomy, um, that particular reference. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 19. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered going to be cut off from the land of the living. If you're not in the land of the living, you are dead. All right, so we've abundantly made it clear. Here it is to be cut off. The Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be put to death, but not for himself. This is where we get to the redemptive purpose of God in the Messiah for all time. It's part of the reason that I struggle with dispensationalism, which you read a lot about when you get into eschatology and prophecy and those kinds of things, because it's a useful mechanism of interpretation. But here's the thing. God has had the same redemptive purpose since the fall in Genesis, which predates Israel, which predates the time of the Gentiles. It predates everything that is, it predates everything. <laughs> so this single redemptive purpose throughout Matthew chapter 27, let's turn there again. <clears throat> again, Jesus is on the cross in Matthew chapter 27. As we get down to verse 46, we read this earlier. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we know that ultimately, here is Jesus Christ on the cross. And he was made sin, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so that we might be made his righteousness. He became that substitutionary death to execute on God's part the redemptive purpose that he has towards mankind to reconcile us back to himself. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have, hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So let's just sum that up. Here is Jesus Christ, and by the shedding of his blood on the cross, makes reconciliation for all of mankind and brings peace, which is what the angels proclaim to the shepherds. Good tidings, peace unto all men. And in the body of his flesh, through the shedding of his blood, he presents us holy and unblameable and unreprovable. In other words, there is no condemnation in God's sight. A couple of references in Hebrews. Again, Hebrews talks about 
those things in the Old Testament being fulfilled and completely uh, manifest in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he is consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. No longer separated, no longer alienated and and divided from our God, but reconciled and brought near him through the veil of Jesus' flesh, through his shed blood. He was cut off, he was put to death, but not for himself, but for those who would come to faith in him. And with that, we conclude the 69th week of, well, not with that, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We conclude the 69th week of Daniel. And really, there's a prophetic parenthesis where we've left off. And I'll say that. Uh, I'll also say that there are those that put all of verse 26 in the 69th week of Daniel, and I don't have necessarily an issue with that. The 27th verse doesn't fit there. It's unfulfilled. It is yet to happen. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But there is a prophetic parenthesis, and and if I'm honest, this is something that I've struggled with because here it is, we have to leave off a sequential fulfillment of what is what is happening uh in theological terms they call it the continual fulfillment and so i coined a new term the other morning i wrote it down it's we i would subscribe to a uh, modified continual christological modified continual fulfillment It, it sounds big and fancy it's just a bunch of words that mean that it's all about Christ. It is ultimately continually fulfilled. And I'm going to explain why I think that. But it's modified. Because there are yet future events. There are yet things to happen in Daniel chapter 9 that, that we can't say this is clearly the fulfillment of that. So at the end of the 69 weeks of Daniel... Uh, It ends with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's cut off, but not for himself. He rises again, conquering death and overcoming overcoming Satan in the process. And he commissions the church to be his ambassadors. And then we have this parenthesis between Jesus and the prince that will come. The prince that will come, I'll just tell you right now, that's the Antichrist. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is fulfilled and what is yet future? Where where do we draw the line in the sand and say, if that's what we're going to say, is unfulfilled? And and I'm convinced that verse 27 is completely unfulfilled. 
And we're going to get to verse 27 before we close this morning. We would be in this period, this parenthetical period now. As I said, dispensationalism, I, I struggle with it in some respects, but it is a useful tool of interpretation sometimes. They would call this, this is the church age, that period of time where the church is involved in things. Which I think there is some merit in that statement in the sense that the church isn't mentioned here because this is prophecy about Israel. There's other reasons the church isn't here. and We're going to get to those as we get to chapter 12. But uh, So if I can just make a, a proposal of a chronology, not a date, not a time when this is all going to happen, but just a chronology, how this progresses. So you have the prince to come, who is the Antichrist, or at least the spirit of Antichrist, and that, you know, that being Satan, he is the enemy of God. And we have that war that started when, I, I'm convinced the war started when Jesus was crucified, if I can put war in quotes. Uh, we're not fighting, this is a spiritual battle. This is, and we look at that, uh, the weapons of warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to the point down of strongholds. When we take every thought captive to the mind of Christ, that, that's the battle that we're fighting. And we've talked about this, this coming together of the enemies of God and that being what I'm convinced is happening and that being that happening even now. And ultimately we're going to see that coalesce into a political entity and that's all going to take place. That's yet future. And that's why it's the continual fulfillment that's happening. That's happening. And I think that there is prophecy and we've looked at some of that in that, in that regard as it is yet to happen. So this war starts when Jesus was crucified. And the reason I say it started when Jesus was crucified is because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Satan bruised the heel of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, and then ultimately Jesus, by resurrecting from the dead, crushed his head. We read that in Hebrews this morning. And so based on Genesis, I'm saying that that war has started and it started in earnest when Jesus was resurrected. Now, that means that for you and I, and it also means that for every other believer who has existed since Jesus Christ has been in that battle, and we're in that battle even now. That's why the, the scripture talks about the weapons of our warfare. It talks about the, and clarifies for us the nature of that battle being spiritual. When we see these things happening in our country that we perceive as political attacks, and we're perceiving them in an incorrect perspective. A biblical worldview would inform us that this is a spiritual attack, and that's the problem. That's what's coming. That's where we have to fight the battle. And I'm glad there are those who are on the other side fighting the, the, the other battle, the, the, what, the perceived battle, and I hope they're on our, our side as well, fighting both battles at the same time. But we have to look at it from a biblical perspective. So we have this prince to come, the Antichrist, the, the, the spirit of the Antichrist. Ultimately, we know that from, uh, from Genesis and all the way through to Revelation, when we encounter that beast, that's the devil, that's Satan. The war started when Jesus was crucified and when he was resurrected. Verses 26 through 27 are an example of the continual spiritual battle waged by the enemy. That parenthetical statement where that's all that's happening is this battle, this fight. And then it culminates in the coalescence of the enemies of God into a political entity. 
And it ends with the decisive victory of Jesus at his second coming. Now, it may not be exactly at a second coming. That's sort of when the, the war ends. There may be another battle or two left. Uh, nonetheless, decisive victory on all counts, all fronts. So I just throw that out there for you. I mean, and, you know, write it down if you want, or I could, maybe I could ramble it off again to you later. But if we have to put a, a, a timeline together, absence of dates, and because nobody knows the day or the hour, that's what I see happening. That's, that's where we're at in, in the prophetic timeline is in that parentheses where the enemies of God are coming together. And we've talked about that, so we're, we're going to move on from that. But <clears throat> whoops. Now in verse 27, uh, let's actually go back to verse 26 and read the second half, and then we'll continue into verse 27. So we have the three score in the two weeks, Messiah is cut off, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So obviously, the temple has to be rebuilt. So does Jerusalem if it's going to be destroyed. It necessitates that. It, it is coming, and, and it's not the only place that is discussed, but uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he... Not speaking of the prince that shall come, not of Jesus Christ, not of the Messiah, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't institute any covenants with anyone that lasted only a week. He instituted a permanent and eternal covenant with all who would come to faith. But there are those who say, well, Jesus somehow made a covenant with Titus, who was the, the Roman emperor of the day doesn't hold water. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But we do have other things looking toward, and we're not going to get into the Antichrist in particular this morning. We're just going to look at what's here, because as we progress through the book of Daniel, we pick him up again, and we'll have more time to look at him more specifically. And I don't want to focus on him, because he loses. Spoiler, he doesn't win. He might have a few battles that he pulls ahead in, but ultimately... Why focus on the loser? History and prophecy doesn't focus on the loser. They focus on the winner. So, so we're not going to spend more time than is, than is due here. But And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the, the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So at this point, we have the lines of history, Israel and the Gentiles running concurrently at this point. They're one in the same line, uh, and they end with the same major event. And we're, we'll get to that here in just a moment. But the final week begins with the introduction of the covenant between Israel and Antichrist. He, he somehow orchestrates peace such that Israel can rebuild the temple. That's what happens. He institutes that and it gets built and it lasts uh, half of the last week or the last seven years of Daniel. It lasts for three and a half years. And we know that because it says <clears throat> in the midst of the week, we're going to find out it's a false covenant. 
And ultimately what happens is the temple is desecrated so much so that it becomes, and there's actually this weird word in there. Uh, it's actually the word in Hebrew of for wings. And most people would interpret that, that the, the, the pinnacle of the temple, that which is viewable from great distance is, are, are the wings of the temple. Anyway, it, it's sort of an odd phrasing and it, I, there's not a single English version that I read that it, that it actually comes through because it makes no sense to us in English. Um, but that's how translation works. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us in English. Uh, so we, we don't see it here, but we have this overspreading of abominations. This, this, it, it, all that to say that the wings right here it is, they're, they're there, but, but they become this idolatrous or, or this uh, place of pagan idolatry. The, the temple becomes desecrated and it ultimately becomes a temple not for worship of the living God, but for worship of the Antichrist. That, that's the long and short of it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, and that's yet to come. We know it's yet to come because in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, in Mark 13, 14, talking about the same time period, Jesus Christ said, listen, when you see the abomination, and we've been there multiple times, so we're not going to read, when you see the abomination, it maketh desolate. In other words, it makes it empty. It makes it so that there is no significance in that temple any longer. It's all false idolatry. When that happens, he says, and, and, and he specifically says, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, flee. So here is Israel. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And when you see that happen, when you see the abomination that maketh desolate, Israel, you need to get out of town. The church isn't here. Israel, you need to get out of town. Jesus understood this to be future. Daniel understands this to be future. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Because we have this, again, this, this same reference. He says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Okay, Daniel understands, and, and, and I say that, I realize there's a whole bunch of context in chapters 10, 11, and 12 that we haven't covered. We're covering it to come. Daniel anticipates this to be a future event beyond the cutting off of the Messiah. And I think that becomes clear as we study through. There's more to come about, uh, come, come on that topic as we progress through Daniel, okay? Ultimately, he says that this happens even until the consummation. The consummation. This continues, this defamation and this abomination at the temple continues until the return of Jesus Christ. The consummation that's being uh, discussed is the consummation of, <laughs> of the enemies of God. I mean, it, it, this is the end. Jesus returns, and when he comes back, as it says, he's not coming as the little shepherd boy, or shepherd boy, the little carpenter's son in Nazareth. He's coming as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and we read about that in the book of Revelation. He comes with the two-edged sword. He cut, he's coming in heavy. And it's a decisive victory. <clears throat> now, let's major in the majors. I know we've talked about a lot of things. 
Uh, and I don't want to get hung up on the minutia of the prophecy because all too often that seems what's happened. There is more to come, but the main point, the main point for us to take away is the absolute victory of Jesus. This is Christological. Here's Gabriel, the, the messenger of the Messiah, giving information here. Apocalyptic literature, right? It's all about the encouragement. This is encouragement to Israel. You are not forsaken. God is going to fulfill the promises that he has made to you from all the way back in Genesis, all the way through. And not only that, but we as believers have this comfort that we should expect victory and deliverance. Daniel understands the hardship of Israel that is yet to come. In fact, as we look at uh, Daniel's encounters with the prophecies that he's had, some in the past and as we continue forward, some in the future uh, as re in regard to the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel is physically ill as a result of the significance that he realizes. He understands what is happening. But he also understands in the middle of all that the faithfulness of God and his redemptive purpose. You understand the faithfulness of God. I think that's evidenced here in chapter 9, because what is he doing? He's seeking the forgiveness of God for his nation. If he didn't believe that God was faithful and trustworthy, why would he trust that Jeremiah the prophet had said 70 years and it's all we're, we're going back? He trusts the Lord. He knows who he is. So we don't want to get hung up in the minutia of all the prophecy. And that's what people like to talk about, these little tiny details and those kinds of things. Ultimately, why did Gabriel come to make Daniel understand and give him proper wisdom and the application of that understanding? I'm convinced the proper application of the understanding of prophecy is the victory of Jesus, is his sovereignty, and ultimately, for us as believers, our privilege and joy to be his. And if we want to focus on, if we want to major in the minors, we're going to stray into all kinds of weirdness. There's a lot of weirdness out there. But these things are absolutely true and absolutely true. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them. Doesn't mean that we can't talk about them. But understand that the overarching thing that we really need to understand isn't the details. It's the bigger stuff. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have opened your word and to have uh, looked at the encouragement, hopefully, Lord, the encouragement that is to be found there. And God, as I pray, as we progress through uh, the remainder of Daniel, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would have a clearer and fuller understanding of your purpose toward mankind, your redemptive purpose, your plan for Israel, Lord, your ultimate victory, and the encouragement that we as believers should find in those truths. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We praise you and thank you uh, for your interaction and the faithfulness that you extend toward Israel, even yet to come, things that we haven't seen. And God, I pray that as we, as we enter into worship, Lord, that we wouldn't be forgetful of your plan and the overarching theme of Scripture. We thank you. We praise you, Lord, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.